Good morning. Um, at this time, the children and youth are dismissed. Kids will head out to the back there, um, and youth will head out that way with Pastor Bree and her team. This morning, we are continuing our walk through the Gospel of Luke. We've been talking about good news for the lost. Um, and this morning, we'll talk about a group of lost that we all belong to. Um, this morning, we'll focus on good news for the forgiven. Um, so good morning. Uh, this is a week and a time of year where we specifically, as a culture, as a society, give thanks. Um, I think that's one of the most amazing things about our culture um, is that even here in the West, with all these stories about people not believing in God, with all these stories about people walking away from church, I think it's good that the society as a whole stops to give thanks. And, and so with this spirit of, of giving thanks, you know, it makes sense because in this passage, you know, we need to give thanks for who God is, who God was, who God is to come. But I think one of the interesting things that, that kind of falls out of our passage this morning is we give thanks for who God has revealed himself to be. Uh, my wife has a book um, called Gorilla of Grace, uh, Prayers for the Battle. It, it's written by um, an old Philly um, pastor by the name of Ted Loder. Uh, he's a Philly preacher and pastor from the Germantown area of the city. Uh, this is a guy who, on one sense, you know, was a, was a prophet. You know, he was this white guy in the 60s and, and marched with Dr. King, right? Um, but throughout his career, he even made his church a sanctuary um, for Guatemalan refugees uh, who weren't given asylum by the U.S., though they had uh, been through a lot of struggles. But this, uh, he has this very much prophetic, prophetic work that he did on an everyday basis, but he was also a poet. And, and in this book, you have a lot of his poetry. And, and so when he says reclaiming or, or, or prayers for the battle, guerrilla of grace, he's playing on this war terms, right? So when you hear guerrilla, usually... Uh, especially in specific war, is, is someone who's fighting, right? But for him, the way we reclaim territory is through prayer. And a lot of prayer warriors, they resonate with this, right? So for him in this book is we're retaining, we're claiming territory for this higher cause. One of the things that's interesting with the, the book is you have a bunch of different poems in it. Um, and, and, and in this whole thing, he, he kind of has, maybe one of the overarching themes of the book is he asks us to... Um, embrace what he calls the, the sneakiness of God, right? By that he means that, you know, it's a mystery how God interacts with us every day in every way. So the challenge for us isn't just to sit there and wait for some eureka moment to come down, but the challenge is to realize that in my everyday scenes, you know, brushing my teeth, you know, driving the kids to school, um, interacting with people at work, in the everyday things, that's where God shows up. So the sneakiness of God is accepting the mystery of every day. Um, and in the spirit of thanksgiving, he has this one poem that I really appreciated this week. Um, and the poem's called, I'm So Thankful to Be Alive. And the, I, was, I was like, well, it's Thanksgiving. That's why I like the poem. But as I thought more about the passage this week, I really realized that he hits on something that I think helps us to kind of unpack this passage, which we'll do in a few minutes. And I'm so thankful to be alive. Loder writes this. I'm so thankful to be alive. Thankful for those times when the rhythm of my life catch the cadences of your kingdom, when there's a lightning in me for a moment, when the creep of courage allows me to dare to serve the gifts you have put in me. So the challenge that Loda presents us is in, in being thankful to be alive, what does this kind of thankfulness actually look like for us? Right? It's one thing to say, you know, God, thank you for the breath that I breathe. Thank you for these blessings that I have. Thank you for all these things, all these things, right? But what does that thankfulness look like? Where in your life can you notice the sneakiness of God? Where in your everyday has God showed up? You know, how is your natural rhythm catching the cadence of the kingdom? I love that. I'm not a musician, right? But as an African-American, as a Liberian, I know how to dance, right? So I, I appreciate good rhythm. But I like that, that he said, you know, where is your rhythm of life catching the cadence of the kingdom? I think that's beautiful. Where in your everyday, you know, I think a lot of us, we live every day just to get through the day. You know, we live every day just trying to survive or hold on. But the challenge that Loder is making is, where does your everyday match the cadence of the kingdom? How are you bringing your everyday into the kingdom? So I love that. And so this, this question that we have as we go to our passage this morning kind of rounds it up in this. Is, you know, 
Where is God's light inside of you that's moving you and giving you the courage to love God more deeply and to serve God more fully? And with that in mind, we go to Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We'll be rounding out the chapter this morning, starting at verse 36 and reading through to verse 50. We'll have it up front so you can follow there as well. Luke 7, 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Uh, there's some people who speculate here that, that, that actually there's no word in the Aramaic for gratefulness, right? So the, answer, the question is probably better asked, which of them will be more grateful, right? The one who owes 500 and the one who owes 50. So hold that in mind. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that you are the God who's revealed yourself to be good and true and merciful and compassionate and kind. Lord, we thank you this morning that we are blessed by the good news of your forgiveness. We thank you this morning that in your forgiveness, you have freed us from the shackles of sin, from a destiny that wasn't prepared for us, but a destiny we had earned through our sin. You have freed us from being commanded or, or imprisoned by our sin, by the evils of this world, by even the devil himself. Lord, you have set us free. You have broken that chain. But now that we have been freed, Lord, we pray that we are also free to love you more fully, to serve you more deeply, and to worship you more wholeheartedly. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So one interesting way to look at Luke 7, one writer said that when you look at Luke 7, you see Jesus breaking all the taboos. The first taboo he breaks is the, the, the racial taboo. Because the Jews, whether they were Pharisees or not, even if they were Samaritans or not, everyone had a common enemy as the Roman. Yet the, the chapter begins with Luke, Jesus saying, I have not seen such faith in Israel as the hated Roman oppressor. So he breaks religious taboos by saying that like, my kingdom belongs to not those who look like me or look like you. My kingdom belongs to those who believe. My kingdom doesn't belong to those who are, are genetically linked to you but those who are spiritually coming in through faith. So he starts off breaking that religious taboo. Then he breaks social taboos. We, the next story is the, the, the widow of nine and her son. And you remember in that story, what does he do? He walks up to the, the funeral beer and he touches it. Something that no one was supposed to do. If there was a funeral procession, you know, it's kind of like when we're driving in the road and the, the, the people are going to the, the cemetery, right? You just pull over, you let them go through, right? That's what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to walk up to the funeral, touch the dead body, and address the people who you're not related to. But that's what he does. And in his compassion that he's moved to, he raises the son to life. There's some people who argue that in that story, it is not just, you know, social taboos he breaks. It's financial and economic taboos. Why? Because if she's a widow, she has no husband. 
If this is her final son, in that culture, that's who was responsible to take care of her. So for her life, she's weeping not only the loss of her son or sons, not only the loss of her husband, but the loss of her livelihood. Because for as long as she's going to be on this earth, she's on her own. So Jesus breaks that economic taboo by saying, you're not on your own. Your God sees you. Your God heals you. I will raise up your son. You will be taken care of. And of course, Jesus does the same thing to Mary, his mother. When he's dying on the cross, he looks down at John and says, what? John, behold your mother. Mary, behold your son. Because Jesus understood that economic weight that was on these mothers who were widows, right? So there's an economic breakage that he does here. But then in the, the, the third story, we see that Jesus' forgiveness then, right, it even violates moral taboos. John, uh, Luke begins this story by saying Jesus accepts, you know, uh, an invitation to a dinner at the Pharisee's house. It's probably more than likely that this wasn't just like a Thanksgiving dinner with friends and family. It's probably more than likely that this was a banquet. And how you would think about banquets, right? As, as in, like, you would have the, the guest of honor. You would have maybe a little program going on. You'd have maybe some teaching. Um, the difference with their banquets and ours was that in their banquets, the door wasn't closed. You may not have access to the food, but you could at least come in and see. Right? In their banquets, in fact, the more religious you were, right, you wanted to show people how pious you were, you invite more people. Well, first of all, I got to take that back. You would invite your guests. And then you would invite the people, right? You would have them be able to see, because you're like, look, I'm so pious. I have this great teacher. You can't eat my food, but you can listen to the preaching, right? So, like, the people were actually encouraged, and it was part of their culture. So when we had Thanksgiving, most of us, you know, we ate at the table. We sat down. The doors was closed, right? If someone showed up, it was a shock. It was a surprise. In their culture, people were expected to show up. So, so Luke begins by, by showing how Jesus is going to violate religious taboos because even before the story, right, Luke has this verse in Luke chapter 7, right before 36 and 34 and 35. Remember what Luke said about Jesus, right? The son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her children. So first in that passage, Luke is going to show all the ways that John destroyed religious taboos. And then says, you know what, John didn't look the part, but he was more pious than all of us and you accept him. Jesus didn't look the part. And he was characterized as someone who got drunk all the time and was a friend of sinners. And what I love about that is it's not just good foreshadowing and good writing. Luke is going to use that last line to introduce what he wants to teach about. Is that, oh, you think Jesus is a friend of sinners? Let me tell you a story. Right? You think Jesus breaks religious taboos? Let me tell you a story. And he opens with conflict. Another thing that I think is important for us to realize and recognize is that conflict in and of itself is neutral. Conflict is going to happen, right? For those of you who are privileged with siblings, right, or some of you who are privileged with, with, you know, wives or spouses or husbands or children or any of you who are happen to be human, right, you'll know that conflict is something that happens in life. And I think there's a lot of us who look at conflict, we automatically think bad, right? If I'm driving on the side of the road and my flat tire goes out, that's a conflict, right? It's neutral. If I have a bad attitude towards changing my own tire, I might make the problem even worse, right? So conflict in of itself is neutral. It's, it's the attitude that we take into the conflict. It's the posture we take into the conflict. Now, writers, on the other hand, they do something even more with conflict, right? For them, it's not just that conflict is neutral. A lot of good writers will show you that conflict needs, a, 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 there's a want, and then there's an obstacle before you get to the resolution. We're back in English class. Thanks, makes business, right? Right? There's a want, there's an obstacle before you get to the resolution. So Luke is going to open with conflict. First of all, twice in the first verse, he wants you to know that Jesus interacted with a Pharisee. Whenever you see repetition in the Bible, it indicates significance. In case you missed it the first time, he's like, Jesus was talking to a Pharisee, and a Pharisee invited Jesus to dinner. What is Jesus dealing with? A Pharisee. That's important. That's conflict. Because so far in Luke's story, the Pharisees haven't been on Jesus' tithe. In fact, earlier, a couple chapters before, after a great miracle, the Pharisees were thinking about what? What to do with Jesus. The religious leaders have already started contemplating how to get rid of Jesus. So the fact that Jesus is going to a banquet, conflict. The second one is that when Jesus is going into this house... Right? 
He's going as a guest, yeah, but he's also going where he's not comfortable. This isn't the house of a friend. This isn't the house that he's staying in. This isn't even people he might, you know, like love hanging out with. Because what is Jesus? He likes hanging out with what? The, the, the drunks and the sinners, right? He doesn't like hanging out with the hoity-toity, as some of my grandma used to say, right? Like he doesn't like this. So there's conflict in Jesus interacting with these people who know that they're better than everyone else. So, so the writer of Luke is going to come building this conflict, building this conflict. And in case you didn't get it so far, he goes, oh, and there was a sinful woman there. And we have to pause here because it's interesting. Because a lot of people assume that because Luke says this is a sinful woman, the first assumption that it has to be Mary. I don't think it's Mary. I think Luke is actually really good about being intentional. And if, one, if her name was important, he would have given it to us. And two, if it was Mary, he would have told us. Because the actual anointing of Jesus that most of us think of happens during Holy Week in a different part of Israel. Like, remember, in Luke 7, Jesus is in the north. The anointing that Mary gives is in the south. Now, I'm not saying she couldn't have anointed twice. It's just more likely she didn't, right? Like, so this is a whole different story, a whole different woman. But the second thing is that we assume, which is even more dangerous than saying, oh, this is Mary, we assume we know what her sin is. A lot of people will tell you when they teach this story, like, well, she had to be a prostitute. Why? Because she let her hair down in the story and, and, and you know, uh, accepted women or, or good women would never let their hair down. They would never let their hair uncovered, right? I'm not going to laugh at this, but we as Brethren in Christ and Anabaptists struggled with this for a couple centuries, right? It took us a while to realize that if a woman doesn't have her hair covered, it doesn't mean that, like, she's, in, she's not respectable, right? So this isn't, like, a new thing, right? This is something that the church has struggled with, right? So, so that's one of the assumptions we put on her. All we know is that, yes, she's a sinful woman, but what is her sin? We don't know. Luke doesn't seem to care that much about it. So I think it's interesting that we try to input what we think the sin is, right? But what we do know is that this woman needs Jesus. What we do know is that this woman wasn't invited to the table. What we do know is that this woman knew that all I have to do is go and interact. All I have to do is go and be with Jesus, and I will be changed. Now, the obstacle that she's carrying with her is this reputation, right? This reputation. Now, another one that people assume she's a prostitute is because she had perfume, right? And they said, well, prostitutes use perfume. I'm sure only prostitutes use perfume, right? Like, I'm just, I'm sure that's only people who use it, right? But, but that's some of the things they put on her. But neither, either way, she had this reputation as being a woman who's a sinner. And so that puts her in an obstacle. She's not invited. She's probably not wealthy and to do. Everybody's gossiping and talking about her. She has a reputation in the community, yet and still, she still comes to Jesus. This should motivate you. Because so much of our life, we tell ourselves, right, that it's not big enough for me to come to Jesus, or maybe I'm not good enough to come to Jesus, or, or maybe, like, it, it's just, I don't know if I can come to him right now. Let me clean myself up. How many times in Scripture do people not have to clean themselves up to come to Jesus? She didn't say, let me clean myself up, get my life right, restore my reputation, start going to synagogue, and then I'll come to Jesus. That's not what she said. She just, what, came to Jesus, Conflict needs need an obstacle. She had all the obstacles dragging her down, but not enough to keep her from coming to Jesus. So she comes to Jesus, right? And, and then the other thing about writers that they do with conflict is that conflict tends to reveal the true character, right, of the people in the story, the true character of the characters, right? So two of the greatest pieces of, of, of Western literature are, are Willie Shakespeare's Hamlet, right? And Disney's The Lion King. You know, I look at them as hand in hand, right? Great pieces of Western, you know, just culture, right? If you don't believe me, someone will write a PhD dissertation and be like, well, Hank was right. But in Hamlet and in The Lion King, you have central characters chasing the ghosts of their father who are running away from it. And when they finally decide I have to do something about it, their true character is revealed. Hamlet's true character we don't necessarily like. Right? At the end. But Simba, right? We love him, right? Because his true character, right, reveals that, listen, there's a great scene in that movie where his father says, well, remember who you are, remember whose you are, right? First sermon I ever heard as a six-year-old, I was like, that's brilliant, right? It's brilliant. You teach him, Mufasa. 
Because that's biblical, right? A lot of us, we get out of a lot of trouble if we remember who we are and remember whose we are. Right? And so, so conflict a lot of times reveals the character of the people, right? And that's what's going to be revealed here. The character of Simon the Pharisee, the character of the woman who's called sinful, and the character of Jesus the Savior. I love that her past doesn't hold her back. She comes because she needs Jesus. And then something phenomenal happens that we see in the story. She comes needing Jesus, not knowing what the interaction will do, but when she truly meets Jesus, she can't help but worship. That'll preach. A lot of our favorite passages of worship in the scripture is David dancing like, like a mad person in the street, right? And he says, I will be more undignified than this. What is more undignified than having your entire community looking down upon you for being a sinner? What's more undignified than showing up to a banquet that, that, that you're not invited to? What's more undignified than crying so much that your tears are wetting the foot of the Messiah? What's more undignified than having nothing to do and not knowing whether or not you can touch him so you take your hair and wipe his feet? What's more undignified than her? David was a king. And I love that David worshiped God with all his being, but David was a king. The only people who spoke against David was his wife who didn't really like him. Because he kind of like kicked her dad out of power, right? Like it's kind of important, right? David was a king, and yet we uphold that as a picture of worship. I would venture to say she gives us a greater picture of worship. That she came because she needed Jesus, and when she truly interacted with Jesus, she was so broken. She was so broken, she couldn't help but worship. Because the truth of the matter is, meeting Jesus changes everything. She's alone in her family, in her community. In that banquet hall, but she still came to Jesus. She's vulnerable in her family, in her community, in that banquet hall, yet with Jesus, she feels safe. Maybe for the first time in her life, she feels safe. Never underestimate the power that you have and the blessing that you can give by making others feel safe. She's alone, and she comes to Jesus. She's vulnerable, but she feels safe. She's broken. The tears that flow are not just tears of, of, of worship. They're not just tears of surrender. They're tears of grief. They're tears of, of sin. They're tears of the past that is holding her back. But in letting the tears flow, she's finally free. She's free. She's free. She's weak in the midst of all these people. Now, a lot of us have different levels of embarrassment or different things that embarrass us. In my life, I can only think of like two times I've truly been embarrassed, right? One of them was at Strawberry Square here in the city. I told this story before. And it was just a beautiful spring day. I was enjoying my bike ride, you know. One of the things I do when I used to ride my bike all the time is sometimes I would ride without my hands. Been doing this since I was like nine, right? Love doing that, right? Well, on this great day, I decided not only was I going to drive or ride my bike without hands, right? I was like, ooh, let me get the wind. Let me stand up. Now, a bicycle is not a unicycle. If you stand up on a bike without hands, you know what happens. Now, with my great fervor, it just happened to be lunchtime at Strawberry Square. So it wasn't just like there was one or two people outside. There was safely about 100. And not only did I fall, I fell badly. Right? Like, so there's a lot of us who have different levels of embarrassment. But even that, right, pales into comparison to what this lady must have felt. That for years in her own society, in her own culture, in her own family, she's looked down upon. That even the gospel writer can characterize her not by her name, but by her sin. And to, to go to a, a banquet where she's invited but has to stay in the back. She can't eat the food, and she just has to stay there, right? She's actually at Jesus' feet. So, so this lady who is weak by all the metrics of this world, when she interacts with Jesus, she's not burdened by her weakness. She's unburdened by Christ's love. She's not burdened by her brokenness. She's unburdened to worship more freely. And then Jesus tells the story. 
right? Because Jesus is the God who sees. So Luke gives a little uh, a writer's note here. How Simon is thinking to himself, you know, thinking that maybe his own personal thoughts are safe, right? So he's just thinking to himself, nobody can hear it, right? And he's just like, well, I mean, this is tricky. I know I invited him, but I don't really think he could be a prophet. Like, prophets wouldn't let sinful people touch them. Like, I just, you know, at least now I know he's not a prophet. Now, some commentators will be like, you know what, this is good. Because it shows that maybe he was a Pharisee, right? But maybe he's one of them liberal Pharisees who gave Jesus a chance, right? It was liberal to give Jesus a chance, right? So maybe he's on that path. But the fact that he's stuck on this thing that, like, well, she's a sinner and she's touching him, that eliminates him. And Jesus hears his inner thoughts, which should terrify all of us. All of us, right? Jesus not only hears the inner thoughts... He responds directly to them. So it wasn't one of those things where he's just like, did he hear what I'm thinking? I'm not sure if he heard it. Jesus like, oh, Simon, let me tell you a story. Yeah, yeah, what's the story? Tell me the story, right? Yeah. Who? Thinking he's safe. Thinking he's safe, right? And Jesus tells a story about, you know, there's two people who owe a moneylender 500 denarii and and 50 denarii. A denarii was about a day's wage. So 500 denarii would be, you know, at least a year Maybe if you include vacation days, a year and a half to two years worth of pay, right? Like that's how much they own. So I don't know what your salary is, but double that. And that's what you owe to the money lander, right? Now the person with 50 denarii will be a little bit more than a month. So that's probably about two months instead of two years worth of pay, you know? So he tells this story and he says like, well, who do you think will be more grateful? Now the, the, the Greek doesn't have a perfect translation. So they say, who do you think will love him more? Now when I was a kid, I was like, honestly, if I owe 500, I would love you more. You know, I get it. I don't need no Aramaic school. Like, 500, you forgive it, I love you more. Like, 50, I still love you. But 500, I love you, love you, you know? But I think what I love about this passage is that the point that Jesus is making here is that God forgives all. It doesn't matter if it's 500. It doesn't matter if it's 50. It doesn't matter if your world, your society, your culture, your family call you sinful. It doesn't matter if you call you sinful. Come to the Lord for the Lord forgives. That's the lesson in the story. It doesn't matter what you've done. It just matters that you come to Jesus. It doesn't matter how you've fallen short. It just matters whether or not you take his hand and let him pick you back up. It doesn't matter all the sins that you've done. God forgives sin. And the greatest sign of forgiveness is great love. And so Jesus looks at all of this. And with the lady still at his feet, he turns to Simon and says, listen, if conflict reveals true character, let's look at the character of you and this woman, Simon. Because I came to your banquet in your home, and you didn't even welcome me in. She did. I came to your banquet, walking around all day with these dirty feet. You didn't even offer me water to wash my feet. She cried so much and was so embarrassed by those tears, she used her hair to clean my feet. I came to your home, and you didn't even greet me. She did. I came to your home, right? And and so there's a lot of people who say that, like, when the oil went on your head, it was an anointing. But she's anointing his feet here. So there's some people who say that it's not so much an anointing of him as king, which, again, separates Mary's anointing in the other gospels, right? But that this was more to do with the fact that in dry areas, people have dry skin. Right? And so part of the anointing oil was saying, like, I know you walked a while. Let me wash your feet and let me moisturize your feet. Now, some of you don't know about moisturization. <laughs> right? Like, I'm just going to leave that alone. But some of you don't know about moisturization. But in my culture, we over-moisturize. Right? Like, I grew up in a house where we had cocoa butter, where we had lotion. And then if your aunt or mom wasn't sure, she brought out the big one, which was Vaseline. Right? Like, so, so some of you, this is like a stretch for you. You got to use your imagination, right? But after you shower or wash something off, you moisturize, right? And, and so, so a lot of people say this is less about anointing Jesus. And because it was a feet, like, she was actually moisturizing his feet, which is what? A level of care. You invited me to your house. You didn't welcome me. You didn't serve me. You didn't greet me. You didn't even care for me. She did. So you think she's sinful, You just told me everyone's forgiven the same, but you think she's sinful. And in our culture, Simon, 
What is a greater sin than lack of hospitality? What is a greater sin than lack of actually treating your guests right? What is a greater sin than not even greeting your guests or providing something for them to wash their feet? You think she's a sinner, Simon. Guess what? You're a sinner too. Her character is to what? Not just atone for her sin, but ask for forgiveness, common brokenness. Your response is what? To be haughty and to look down at her. Whose character is truly revealed? And after Jesus calls him out, he finally turns to her and praises her faith. Not just to Simon, not just to the disciples, but to the entire room. Why? Because he says, her great love reveals her great forgiveness. I love that. Because Jesus seems to believe that because we've been forgiven greatly, we ought to love greatly. Because God has done so much for us, we ought to be willing to do so much for God and so much for others. And the fact that her great love points to, proves, uplifts, shows her forgiveness. How does God's forgiveness of you show up in your life? What is the great forgiveness that you show by your great love? And then because he's Jesus, he's not done yet, right? He turns and what does he say? He says, your sins have been forgiven. And for maybe the second time in Luke, people are just like, well, who is this? Like, who is this to say that your sins are forgiven? And it's interesting because the word that, that Luke uses before for, you remember the, 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 the friends who, who brought in uh, their friend who was paralyzed, right? Did a little redecorating of the roof and then dropped him down, right? The word that Luke uses is ephesus. And ephesus has more to do with not just forgiveness but release. And that's the same word that Jesus gives here to someone in a society and a culture that's been ostracized. To someone in a society and a culture that everyone just sees her sin. To someone who's never fit in. To someone who there's no room for at the table. Jesus says, I release you of all of that. And he sends her on her way. Remember how Luke 7.35, the, the verse that begins this, that, that kind of ends the, the last story and begins this one. Jesus says what? Wisdom is proved right by all her children. Wisdom in the Jewish understanding was another name for God. And so what Jesus is going to prove in this story, that the way we see God, or one of the ways that God is proved, is through the love of God's children. Sisters and brothers, that's why we ought to love. Because we've been forgiven greatly. Because we've been set free and released to love. And because in our love, we can show our world what our Lord looks like. And so Jesus sends her away. So as we think about our forgiveness this morning, you know, I have four things we can give thanks for. In my family at Thanksgiving, that's one of the things we do. We go around, everyone says one thing they're thankful for. Well, I got four for us this morning. So hopefully one of these resonates with you. The first one is give thanks. Jesus is still a friend of sinners. Jesus is still a friend of sinners. Our sin, yes, separates us from God. Our sin, yes, builds distance between us and God. Our sin, yes, builds distance between us and the people we love, people in our lives. But Jesus is still with us if we're willing to accept the invitation and to come back home. We serve a God who doesn't turn his back on us. We serve a God who doesn't just, just doesn't die for our sins, but is willing to redeem us of those sins, to set us free from those sins, to break the shackles of those sins, to give us not just a thesis and a release, but to give us redemption and a new life from those sins. We so worship a God who's a friend of sinners. Give thanks. Jesus is still the God who sees. Now, I talked about how Simon thought to himself, right? Like, oh, my gosh, is he really a prophet? Because he can't be a prophet because that lady's touching him, right? And it can be terrifying to us to know that God sees and hears even our most inner thoughts. But it can also be an ephesus and a relief to know that you may not know yourself as well as God knows you. And for some of us, the more we know ourselves, right, we don't like it. But the thing about God is he knows you perfectly, and he not only likes you, he loves you. 
the God who sees is a comforting thing to us. Meaning that even the ugliness that we sometimes show up, that we try to stamp down, God sees that and says, no, we're going to work on that ugliness, but don't let that ugliness convince you that you're ugly. Don't let that sin convince you that you're not good enough. Don't let your past convince you that you don't belong. Don't let the mistakes you've made convince you that you're only that mistake or you're all that mistake. You're the redeemed daughter of God. You're the redeemed son of God. You're the redeemed child of God. God sees and still loves you. Give thanks because Jesus still works in and through you. She came to Jesus alone, vulnerable, broken, weak. She found in Jesus home, safety, freedom, and worship. God can work in and through you. The work we have to do is to accept the invitation, is to ask for forgiveness, is to turn the car around, right? Shoot, right? It's to turn the car around, and it's to fully worship him. And the last one, give thanks, because Jesus still blesses your worship. And I love this, because some of us may look like David dancing in the streets. Some of us may look like this woman weeping uncontrollably or weeping quietly in our seats. Some of us have, have public confessions, right? Some of us have private confessions. But in all these things, Jesus cares about you, your heart, your praise, your life. Jesus cares about you. That's why he invites you to worship. Jesus cares about your heart. That's why he wants to hold it, protect it, bless it. And Jesus cares about your worship, not just because he's great, but because in that worship, we get a chance to not only see who God really is, but we get a chance to say thank you for what he has done for us. Amen? I'd like to invite up the worship team. This uh, morning we're going to end our service with communion. Pastor Ryan will come up. Um, as you came in this morning, hopefully you're able to take the elements on your way in. If you did not, maybe raise your hand. We have a couple of deacons in the back that can bring elements to you. Um, in the next moments, again, we'll be sharing in communion together, celebrating this new life that we have in Jesus. Um, our requirement is that you are indeed a follower of Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to partake of the bread and the cup. Again, if you need the elements, just raise your hand. We'll be able to give it to you. Um, as you receive them, we ask that you hold them and let us go through the liturgy together. Again, the table of the Lord is for all who believe, all who've received Jesus Christ as Lord. We now invite you to come to this table, not because we must, but because we may. We come to testify not that we are perfect, but that we sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. We come not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in our frailty, we stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. We come not only to remember his death, but also his resurrection and promise to return. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before us, let us lift up our minds and our hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to us the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let us join together now in a responsive reading for communion taken from Revelation chapter 21, the revelation from Jesus Christ through his servant John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, 
They will be his people. He will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. One way we remind ourselves that we are his people is to share in the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you so much for your deep, deep love for us. Lord, we come before you, before this table, blessed by you forgiving us, healed by you redeeming us, saved by you saving us. So we give thanks for this bread, which represents your body, Lord which you gave for us to be broken, that you gave for us lovingly and freely so that we can be set free. So as we take this bread, Lord, we give thanks that in your brokenness, we've been healed. In your death, we have new life. In your dying, we have salvation and life in you. In your holy and precious name, amen. My sisters and brothers, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your hearts and be thankful. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing. And he told his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Jesus, we remember your blood that was shed. We remember how entering the Holy of Holies, entering the very presence of this kind of, you know, kind of distant, intimidating God that the, the priests would sprinkle the altar with blood and sprinkle the, the entranceway with blood and, and how, you know, that made them justified in approaching you. So how marvelous and how wonderful that, that in coming to, to Christ, um, it's his blood, it's your own blood, God, um, that paves the way for us to come boldly before the throne, boldly before your altar not with trembling knees, but, but with open arms in response to your open arms towards us. We praise you for this blood of the new covenant that cleanses us and makes us new, not by, you know, virtue of anything within us. It is all your work, Jesus. We praise you and we love you. Amen. My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. At this time, I'd like to invite all the um, pastors in the room up. Um, we'd love to pray for you, either in response to something in the service or just in general of anything you've got going on. Um, let's stand and sing uh, one of my favorite songs that reminds us of not only our deep need for God, but God meeting our deep need. Let's stand and sing together. Lord, I need you. Lord, I come. I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest. And without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. And Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, 
sin runs deep, your grace is more. When grace is found, is where you Philadelphia, that's what we called them, Young Bucks, right? Um, we used to sing this song in Sunday school, and it went, freely, freely you have received, freely, freely give. Go in my name, and because you've believed, others will know that I live. I saw that song anew this morning. I saw that song anew through the light of this passage, because in essence, that's what happens to this woman. She comes to Jesus with nothing and leaves with everything. She comes with Jesus in vulnerability and weakness and leaves in comfort and strength. She comes to Jesus and freely, freely, he gifts her not just salvation and forgiveness of her sins, but he compels her to what? Go and tell. And so this morning as we prepare to leave, may we be reminded that we have been freely, freely gifted salvation of Jesus. And this doesn't, this goes out to, to all of us, right? Maybe you're in this room and you've never made that decision to follow Jesus. We can never take that for granted. First of all, I'd like to invite you. Secondly, selfishly, I need you to say yes so I can get to heaven sooner. That's how it works. Until the last person saved, we ain't going nowhere, so come on. But in scripture, we're reminded that all of us have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. We're reminded that what we've earned is, is this separation away from God. But if we accept the invitation, if we ask for forgiveness, if we say Jesus is Lord and actually pledge our lives fully to him, we will receive that free gift of salvation. And for those of us who've made that decision, who've received that free gift of salvation, the onus is on us now because wisdom is known by her children. May our God be known to our world by our love. 
May the grace, the mercy, the compassion, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness that God has gifted and given all of us flow in us and through us into our world. May they know we love them. May God's love be shown through us. Amen? Amen. Our Father, our God, we thank you so much that all of us who've chosen to follow you have been freely gifted your gift of salvation. We thank you like, like the woman in this gospel story. We years ago, or maybe even this morning, came to you vulnerable and weak, broken and alone. But Lord, in asking for forgiveness, we find redemption. In asking for, for forgiveness, we find healing. In asking for forgiveness, we're made whole in you. Lord, we thank you that through your sacrifice, through your dying on the cross for our sins, through you raising from the dead day, raising on the third day to conquer death and, and destruction once and for all, that we know that our God is good, our God is true, our God is faithful, our God redeems. So, Lord, those of us who have been freely gifted, may we freely give. Those of us who have received your salvation, may we truly love. May we be moved to not just seek Jesus, but to worship Jesus fully. May we be moved to not just follow Jesus, but to follow Jesus more truly. May we be moved not just to say Jesus is Lord, but to live every single day that Jesus is Lord. Lord, meet us in the sneakiness of life. Meet us in the everyday things. Meet us everywhere we go. Meet us in everybody we meet. But meet us and gift us with your love. And may that love that we've been freely gifted flow out of us and into our world. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for setting us free. Now set us out. Release us to share your love with our world. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.